I'm tired. You're tired? I'm tired. Why I work you, a lot. Why are you tired? Because I work a lot. No, actually, it's I'm tired because I have food coma. This is Flying With a Purpose, a podcast brought to you by Flight Review and Melbourne Flight Training. I'm David Allen, a student pilot currently pursuing my private pilot certificate. And I'm Derek Fallon, a certified flight instructor and the owner of Melbourne Flight Training. Got a question about flight training or aviation in general? We'd love to answer it. Details about how to send us your questions will be at the end of the show. Now, let's get to the good stuff. Hello. Hey. Hi. You have food coma? Yeah. Why? Barbecue. Oh. Oh, did you try the new place? Mm-hmm. I, I heard that they just opened up like yesterday or something. It's really good. There's Super hard, good. It's hard to find good barbecue around it's here. It's Dallas-style barbecue. <sighs> so it's like really yummy. Mm. Really yummy stuff. I had a, a brisket sandwich with sweet barbecue sauce, mac and cheese, which is not a, really much of a... Someone's going to correct me on this, but it's, I don't think mac and cheese is really a Dallas thing. Like jalapeno corn is a Dallas thing, but this is, it's good. It's good food. And then they, when we had bread, cinnamon roll bread pudding. So the best brisket I can find around here is in Orlando. So that's a hike. So to have someplace downtown Melbourne here, mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. And you can buy by the pound too. So oh, bring it on. You're good to go. <laughs> well, welcome to another episode of Flying with a Purpose. <laughs> You're listening to uh, Derek over there. And uh, I'm David. Talking about food. Talking about food. Um, so we got a tweet on our last episode. Um, on our last episode, we talked about some of the some of the things. Maybe you, you mentioned specifically one thing that sometimes CFIs do, and and I know it's kind of a divisive topic that you about not do about yeah definitely. Uh, you're saying that if you're messing up things on your on your um, pre-flight for your mm-hmm. students to find like that's something that you don't condone and you should not do that and I, I recommend you go listen to that episode if you haven't already heard it but what was the interesting thing was um, our friends from the Fly Maui podcast I think you can find them at flymaui.com listened to that and they are they just passed their instrument check ride they're working on their instrument rating and they have a long term goal uh, the husband and wife John and Leslie Cobble have long term goals of becoming CFIs and so they said, as aspiring CFIs, this was really good food for thought. And so that got me thinking, what are some other things that maybe you as, a, as an instructor, Derek, as, as a, a, an owner of a flight school and as a boss of instructors who hires your instructors and you want a particular DNA at your flight school, what are some things that maybe are good habits that you want to see in your instructors and bad habits that you try to weed out in your instructors? Laziness. Okay. <laughs> and okay, so that's a really general term. So Very like, general. But, so not necessarily laziness, but maybe the opposite of that is that I encourage them to be thorough. Okay. And not lazy when it comes to their instruction so what does that look like so it looks like someone who's just very comprehensive that covers everything that gives their students you know you just don't go up and do steep turns you talk about why you talk about the elements of the maneuver you know and and then after you give it a thorough debrief of what happened and and why you know uh, you see a lot of flight instructors especially time building flight instructors who will go out to the airplane jump in the airplane, go do a lesson with a student, come right back, see you later, I'll see you next Monday. 
and, and it's just it's it's the the fast and dirty flight lesson, if you will, and they're just not they're not being thorough. It's kind of lazy, right? So the student is paying for the lesson, and they want to hear everything about it. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of things that happen during lessons, technique-wise, that instructors should be doing to accomplish that overall goal of being thorough and making sure they take their lessons like super serious and are, are very thought they're thoughtful towards their students desires to learn there's there's a, a mantra out there that i've heard many times that says the cockpit is a horrible classroom and and yes I, and I, no. I feel both ways on that right i feel both mm-hmm. ways on that like you do but what do you say you know how do you what do you say to that like as if it is just just going out and flying the airplane, I mean, there's there's missing that that there's stuff that's missing. You got to have the theory ahead of time. I, mm-hmm. I would feel so. Like the first thing, as far as the lesson is concerned, is that the instructor is typically not familiar enough with what the airplane flying handbook says you should be doing for a particular maneuver or why you're doing that maneuver and what the what is the end result of the learning experience of teaching this one maneuver. Right? What is a performance maneuver? What is a ground reference maneuver? And how does that particular maneuver in that category teach a student to do something? So typically you'll find an instructor, uh, especially the newer ones, um, who haven't uh, you know, had a lot of students yet. They're just kind of like paving their way as a new instructor. They're kind of like, okay, let's go out and do steep turns. But they don't talk to them about why they're doing steep turns and the importance of it and what what's incorporated with the the how what they learn because you said the classroom the the airplane's not a great classroom right so it is in a way experiential learning happens in the airplane so you teach the elements on the ground and then you get up in the airplane and then they feel what's happening in the plane and that's really important for them to correlate the information from on the ground to in the airplane. So what you really don't want to be doing is you don't want to be teaching airplane stuff on the ground and ground stuff in the airplane. You want to like do it at the right time and then it all will come together when you do the maneuver. But I think a lot of instructors that don't read the airplane flying handbook and understand like why you do steep spirals with commercial students and what that, what the purpose of that maneuver is and what happens at the end and what is it supposed to set you up for? Like it's an engine out maneuver really is what it is. Um, and landing at the best field that you can find in, in, in a, you know, scattered or, mostly broken clouded situation where you're over top of a good point and you can make it down and then land. Um, so if they don't understand that up front, they can't teach their students like the right way to enter the maneuver so that they successfully land the airplane on the ground at the end of the maneuver. So, uh, read up on that and understand before you start teaching a maneuver, what you're really trying to accomplish. And I think that's important is to have both sides. Cause especially early, you know, in the private pilot it, flying is very, very kinetic. I find you got to understand the systems and what's happening, but it's about learning to control the airplane as you get further along and you want to learn about navigation and stuff. There's a lot of book work and you don't want to be learning that necessarily in the, in the cockpit. Right. It's important to have a theoretical understanding what's going to happen and a plan of action. So not only should the instructor teach, on the ground, what they're supposed to be knowing about that particular maneuver, they should have a plan of action. Like, Hey, we're going to go out here. We're going to do this. This is the order of the maneuvers we're going to do. This is our lesson plan or plan of action for the, for the day. So the student isn't 
too far behind the airplane. Okay, next thing we're going to do is the thing we said we're going to do on the ground. And they're like, okay, you know, and then they, you know, unless you have a surprise for them in there to help them kind of think. But that's usually later on during maybe some evaluation, like throw them an engine failure on lesson 12. They've already done a bunch of engine failures, but you gave them a surprise one. That totally makes sense. But everything else should be really well planned out. So the other thing, um, and I should mention this going back to the flying handbook, is that a lot of instructors don't utilize the ACS to the level that they should. I mean, the ACS is essentially the guide to building the pilot, right? It's like the checklist or the outline for building the pilot. And then you can go find the details everywhere else because it has a references section at the top that says you should go to, to do steep turns. These are the, the three references you should go to to get the information about how to do them. And this is what we require you to train them to and test them to and all that stuff. So, so when you say they don't do it to the level that they should, do you, are you saying that they're not using the standards laid out in the ACS um, to the level that uh, – are they not coming up to that level or are they overdriving and saying, here, this is something you should learn, but they're really talking about an instrument skill when they're only on a private skill? Is it over, overstepping the ACS or not quite getting to that? I think they're not – they're habitually – not getting to the standards of the ACS. For example, emergency descent specifies in the ACS that you're going to roll into a bank turn to alleviate any negative G-forces that would be felt by the cockpit. So, like, you're rolling 30 to 45 degrees of bank, and then you start to pitch down to accelerate as your uh, your POH says that you should for an emergency des- descent procedure for, say, a 172. So... There's Which a is reason. interesting because I've done a, a, an emergency descent with you once, mm-hmm. and I didn't know why we did that 90-degree turn. I just learned that one. Yeah, <laughs> but it's in there, and a lot of people don't realize it, so they'll send, they don't ever read the ACS. They know they have to teach their student an emergency descent, but let's say that they omit reading the ACS um, or the flying handbook. They never get that information. They just teach the student you know, the old way of doing it, which was just to push the nose over and dive towards the ground. And now the FAA wants to see this particular maneuver done in such a way that alleviates the negative G forces to prevent loss of control. So the emergency descent is done under control and students miss that on a check ride. Boom, the bus a check ride. Wow. All right. So, um, if, if the instructor isn't going to the books at the end of the day, I think this whole conversation is if the instructor doesn't go to the books, they're wasting their students time and their own time and they're not doing a great job as a flight instructor because i think if, if you talk to any of the dps that are around this school when they go to other schools they will find that or independent instructors they'll find that they'll show up to the check ride and they'll they'll have completely omitted the training for a particular maneuver required by the acs for a particular certificate or rating and that student will fail as a result of not having even been trained even though the instructor endorsed the student saying that they had done so so it's important to be thorough. It's important to know all the stuff in the ACS and the airplane flying handbook and understand why it works and then teach that to the student so that they, so you're thorough and you don't miss anything because everything else is just laziness. You're just going out and flying around if you don't have a plan of action. What, um, what other kinds of things do you find that, that you're, you want to see your students, uh, your instructors do uh, maybe that they're not doing or that they are doing that you want them to knock it off. We're only on like number two of like hundreds of things. So this could be a long podcast. That's okay. We got time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, I think the, the next biggest thing for instructors is the carrying over of uh, bad ideas and techniques. Okay. And that comes from not reading the book again, but not reading procedural books such as the airplane flying, uh, airplane flight manual, 
POH, PIM, um, or the standardization manuals that have been written for that particular school that define like how things should be done. For example, the run-up. Okay, There's a really big lack of understanding of what you're looking for in a run-up as you test the engine prior to takeoff, how that test should be conducted, and if something goes wrong, how to handle it. But if you go to like the Cessna 172 POH, you'll see it says exactly how to do it. One particular test on the run-up that's a frustrating to me that I see students learn this from instructors, but then I pull the book out and just show it to them that they're wrong is the alternator test on the 172. So many people will go out there and I'll be on a stage check with a student and we'll be doing the run-up and they'll reach over and I'm going to test the alternator now. Click the switch off. Okay, it doesn't say that anywhere in the book to turn the alternator off during the test. It says add, uh, it says basically load up the alternator, turn on landing lights, move the flap switch, you know, you know, set 10 flaps and put it back up or do something that's load bearing on the system to see if you get a discharge on the battery. And that will tell you whether your alternator is working or not. So someone has taught them a bad technique on that airplane, and that could actually damage the electrical system of the aircraft. That could damage the voltage regulator or the alternator. You're basically spiking the, you know, I don't know what the intimate details of the wiring are inside of the little box that controls everything, but I can tell you that you're turning it off and turning it back on again, which is resetting the whole thing. So that's something you don't want to do. Um, which mag to test first and how long to be on a mag and you know what you're looking for the carb heat drop. Those are all written in the book, but yet people don't really read about it. So then fast forward through a run-up that goes bad, right? You get down to the end, you have a bad run-up and you don't understand why. Okay. Well, I can look at a, any 172 and say, if I'm selecting one of the magnetos and the engine starts running rough, that I probably have a, a fouled plug, right? If it shuts off, I have a bad magneto, <laughs> The magneto has failed, right? So, uh, and then how to handle that? How do you handle a fouled plug? Well, if if you actually go in and read, there's either going to be something in your POH or there's going to be something in the manual for Lycoming that says, like, this is how to handle a fouled plug situation. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of technical publications and documentation that teach you how to do this properly up front so that you don't go out and do the wrong thing every time and then you never get the actual result of the test that the manufacturer was looking for or you see something that's actually right and then you don't want to fly the airplane because you think that the plane is broke. So let me elaborate on that specific topic right there. If Let's say let's say we do find a fouled plug situation. Is that a go-no-go situation or is that like a, hey, we can fix this on the... On it depends. How's the, how's the plug fouled? Right. Is the plug fouled because you have fine wire plugs and the electrode f- broke off the plug? Is it a... Is the plug actually bad and not producing spark? Is the wire broken? You know, there's a lot of uh, mechanical things that can go wrong from the magneto all the way to the plug that could cause that to happen. But there's also things that aren't connected to the ignition system that can cause that to happen. Mixture's too rich all the time. You're not leaning your airplane on a regular basis, so over time, lead builds up on that plug, causes it to foul. Your oil rings are bad, so oil's getting past your... A lot of excessive oil is getting past your piston rings in your cylinder, and that's causing the plugs to oil foul. Um, there's a lot of things that can happen. But generally, in 99% of the time, if an aircraft is well-maintained, the problem is that the pilots are not leaning the airplane properly. And I refer you to anything from Mike Bush and Savvy Maintenance um, on you know Redbox and Redfin Theory and leaning technique and how you should run your engine. And that uh, I won't go into that conversation because that's 
that can be hours of conversation, but there's a lot of really good information out there, especially on YouTube on how to run rich or lean a peak and stuff like that. But if you're flying around full rich all the time, you're basically gumming up your whole engine with lead. So how do we fix that? We go down to the end of the runway and we follow Lycoming's procedure for clearing an engine. Okay. Um, so you run it up to 2000 RPM for 30 seconds and lean the mixture out until you get rise in the, in the RPM. And after you've completed, you know, 30 seconds of running it or a minute or whatever prescribed for that engine and that manual. And I'm going to open this up to say, look at your engine manual <laughs> before you take my advice. Sure. Cause every engine is different. Every airplane is different. So, um, once you follow that instruction, it should clear. And if it doesn't clear, then, then it's a no go item. But if it does clear, then you're good to go. So that's, I mean, if there was a problem mechanically elsewhere and you followed the procedure to a T and it still didn't work right, then it's a no-go item, but you followed the book. You didn't just make up your own way of trying to clear it or, you know, or whatever. And that was exactly the point I was trying to get to is, is now you've got a fouled plug situation, and if you hadn't read the book, you would immediately just squawk the airplane, ground it, and say it can't fly. When, right. in fact, you could have gone through this procedure, and if it was, a, you know, a, a a situation that was clearable at the end of the runway following the engine manufacturer's procedure, you could have saved the entire flight and actually gone and done your thing. You could have gone on your adventure. You could have gotten home, whatever it is. But because you just went with, oh, it's a foul plug and didn't read the book, now you've just grounded an airplane that didn't need to be grounded. Absolutely. For for no reason. So it can go both ways. But there's not always a procedure for something that goes wrong. But when there is, you should know what it is. And you should use that procedure uh, to, to fix a problem. But going, taking this another step further is that if this is your plane and you're the only one flying it all the time, um, and that happens to you all the time, right? Maybe after a couple of flights, all of a sudden you start getting foul plugs again. You probably need to look at your other, the other techniques that you're using when you're flying the airplane and see if you're even operating the engine properly, you know, or you've got another problem that's causing this to happen. So, um, but, uh, Getting back to the point is that I think the instructor needs to fully understand what they're doing, when they're doing it, especially during engine run-ups and systems operation in the aircraft, and relay that to the student correctly the first time. Because if you teach the student to do a, a test improperly, then they will not really understand the function of that test and what they're testing in the airplane. And they may end up launching in an airplane that's not safe. And which we definitely don't want, <laughs> which we definitely don't want. And, and that's because you taught them wrong because you didn't pick the book up and go, how does Cessna tell me to do this? How does Piper tell me to do this? How does Cirrus tell me to do this? And that's, that would solve a lot of heartache for you in the future as an instructor. As a, as a flight school owner and a boss and a hiring CFI, a guy who hire a CFI who hires CFIs, uh, we talked in our one of our first episodes, maybe our very first episode or second episode, about standardization. And what is it that you're doing or that a, a good chief pilot would do to make sure – what are the things that you would do to make sure that you are uh, operating from a, p- uh, a place of standardization for the aircraft fleet that you have, for the type of DNA that you want for your students – how, what are the things that we specifically do here at Melbourne Flight Training to ensure that our instructors are teaching the way that they need to be taught? So first, someone who's a leader in the in the organization has to go to the book, just like we've been talking, 
and look at what the book says to do. And then they have to put that on paper as some sort of a, an order. Like, hey, this is, this is how I want you to do this, whether that's in a standardization manual or flat operations manual or something like that. So providing the information that was gathered first and then transposed or copied into a manual, that has to be, like, that has to be correct, right? And then you have to train the instructor or try, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're an independent flight instructor and you're listening to this podcast and you don't have anything in writing on how you do things, you just kind of wing it every time you're doing it wrong. If you don't have your policies and procedures and how you're going to do thing and some kind of written reference, you're doing it wrong. You're, you're doing a disservice to yourself and the student. Okay. So once you have your technical publications that have been written and how you're going to do stuff that was taken from information provided by the FAA and the manufacturer of the aircraft and you've put it all in one place, then you have to train your flight instructors or yourself if you're independent to perform those tasks in accordance with the way that you have written them down. And if it doesn't work, you need to change it. Don't leave it uh, nebulous and uh, don't make mistakes in your paperwork. And if you find any of that, you have to correct it as soon as possible. Okay. And then here's the magic. This is the magic secret to successful flight school operation and uh, flight instructor technique. When you evaluate the student on a stage check or a mock check ride, you are essentially evaluating their instructor. You're not evaluating the student. The student is there to perform. The student is there to do a great job. But if the student, you know, you say, hey, give me a forward slip to landing. And the student goes, I've never done that with my instructor before. I have no idea what you're talking about. And yes, the student... Yes, you're all guilty of blaming your instructor at some point. I see through it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I 100% see through this excuse. But sometimes it's real because I've been guilty of it, and I think we talked about it before. So uh, yeah, my, my instructor didn't teach me forward slips. Well, I can't demonstrate it to you, so therefore the student fails the stage check. But who really failed the stage check? Right, it was the instructor. instructor. Right. So you're, you, if you have a, a, ch- a stage check and a mock check process prior to a, to a check ride – that allows you to evaluate if your standards are being implemented, then you have a system of checks and balances that allows you to maintain standardization. If you, ha- like if you have standardization and you write everything down, at the end of the day, if you don't check them, you have no idea whether they're using your standardized procedures until they get to the check ride, and then it's make or break time, and you don't want someone who's non-standardized uh, that hasn't been trained to the ACS. And I'm, I'm talking about standardization with respect to the ACS here. Everyone has their own procedures by their aircraft model type and their flight school and how they want to do things. But at the end of the day, all, all of it, anything you write down has to be approved by the FAA. Somehow, if you're 141 or if you're Part 61, it's got to be by the ACS 100%. So uh, I guess that we can draw from this that, that doing stays checks is a best practice and should be done. Absolutely. What would you say to the... A private instructor who doesn't isn't part of a flight school and doesn't have a chief pilot to answer to. He well, if you have everything in writing, so you won't miss anything, then act as your own evaluator. Okay, you have to say, okay, I am going to evaluate you today, student, and I'm going to pretend like I'm just making sure that you're going to do everything right. And you make it seem like it's it's them that's being checked, but really you're checking yourself and. Um, because you're not going to send them to their own state, their own stage check with you unless you think that they're ready to pass your own test, right? Of course. So independent instructors have to have a little bit higher standards uh, than 
than maybe even organized uh, flight schools. So because they have to make sure that they don't miss anything on themselves. They have to have pretty good memory and they have to write things down. Uh, the other suggestion I have is, and there's no way that you don't have a friend in aviation. If you're a flight instructor at a field, everybody knows who you are. You're a through-the-fence operator. Find another flight instructor on the field to do a mock check or your student. Now, let's be professional, people. Don't steal the student from the other flight instructor. So if you can do a cooperative where you work with another flight instructor to do stage checks with each other on each other's procedures, then make sure that those are clear and work together as well, you know, be professional. What else uh, do we do? Have we not talked about? I know you have a list of things that. Oh, I got a list. Yeah. So, you know, there's lots of things here. This is getting to be a long episode. And so I apologize if you're used to the shorter episodes. I, I hope this is quality information that you guys are getting a lot out of it. So then there's pre flight and post flight. So I know we already talked about making, uh, creating errors on pre flights to trick students and make sure that they see something that. Uh, is broken so they can have that experience. Yeah, that's very dangerous to do, and we 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 discourage doing that, right? For sure. But I think instructors, in a in an attempt to maintain their schedule and keep things moving forward and be efficient and not have to be out doing twelve hour days every day with you know four or five students a day, uh, you know they always tell their students like go pre flight. And when they land, they tell their students, you know, tie the plane down, I'll see you later, and we'll debrief inside. Um, I, I'm i not saying that you can, you know, you shouldn't let your student, like, do that every once in a while. You should definitely let your student pre-flight on their own. and po- Like, you should trust them enough once you've trained them. But every once in a while, you should probably watch what's going on with a pre-flight. Like you should actually observe their pre-flight to make sure they're not messing it, missing anything. I find tons of times I find students who like, they don't, they do a pre-flight and they miss one thing every time. Like, did you know you're supposed to be checking this thing? And they're like, no, I didn't. And you're like, Hey, let me show you this. Like on the Cirrus, the bolts that hold the counterweights in, are you checking that? You know, are you, cause that can cause the elevator to get stuck or just little things, you know, like, um, looking underneath the belly of the airplane, which most people don't want to do. Cause gosh, I don't want to get on the the ground and get dirty. So like just little stuff like that, that they should be checking that you can now observe them making that mistake. And then really big, even bigger than pre-flight because pre-flight, you know, the instructor is going to come out and the instructor should do a walk around too, you know, to make sure the fuel caps are on the all caps. Everything is buttoned up. There's nothing hanging out of a door. And, uh, but the biggest thing is post-flight just totally skipping the post-flight and securing the airplane and, you know, jumping out the door and saying, hey, I'll see you inside for billing and debrief and all that stuff. And then, you know, the student doesn't tie the airplane down or the student doesn't put the control lock in the pedo cover or they leave the parking brake set or they leave the battery master switch on or they just, like, you know, totally miss a hydraulic leak or an oil leak or something wrong with the airplane or, or you, you caught a bird in flight and there was feathers all over the front. But they walk they walk right past the cowling of the airplane and go inside and, you know, with all their books and their logbook and you put their time in and they walk away and the next person that goes out to the plane is like, hey, somebody hit a bird, you know, but they just didn't see it because they just didn't do a post-flight walk around. So it's really important for students to, I think, stay with their students at the end of the flight, tie the airplane down with them. If they see any discrepancies in their post-flight process, go over it with them, make sure they're solid on it. And then actually after every flight, check the airplane to make sure that nothing went wrong during the flight. Because you don't always have to hear something 
for there to be something wrong with the airplane. I hit a bird going to Orlando at nighttime in the summertime, did a full stop landing at Orlando, went to the run-up pad, did another uh, few minutes of flight planning stuff, and then flew back to Melbourne. And then next morning, the line guy sent me a snapshot of the front of the airplane with a dead bird like all over the cowling. And we didn't feel it happened in flight. We didn't thoroughly post-flight the airplane to check to see if we had hit a bird because we had no idea that we did. But we definitely did because it was everywhere. And so, yeah, really thorough when it comes to that kind of stuff. And the other thing is, like, as an as a flight school owner, I'll take I'll put the other hat on as the flight school owner hat. My airplane better be secure. So if you're an independent flight instructor using your own airplane, you probably respect this a lot and go and make sure your plane's tied down every time. But for larger flight schools or for larger rental flight operations or flying clubs, you know, it's really important for the organization for the airplane to be closed up and secure prior to leaving the presence of the airplane because just i mean it's an airplane that takes off at 55 knots so if a microburst comes through your plane is departing the area as if the prop was spinning (laughs) at full power and then it's going to be a haul loss or you know you could someone else could get hurt too so it's a lot of a lot of stuff to think about there but uh definitely majorly lacking on flight instructors not doing sufficient pre and post flights with their students i you know and and i think that's a, a big deal. In fact, I've seen I've seen stuff that has been found after uh, after a post flight uh, after a flight during a post flight that is like okay, yeah, we're definitely not making it home tonight because you know there's oil leaking all the way down the side of the engine, you know, and so it's a, I think it's a, super important to do one, but as an instructor to make sure it's being done and being done properly. Here's a big one. Here's a big example: brake actuators leaking, and I'm not talking about the brakes at the caliper at the wheel that you can easily and readily see if you have no wheel pants, you can go, oh, look, that brake's leaking right there. I'm talking about you're pushing on the brake pedals. That little actuator behind your pedal that controls the brake fluid going to the brakes is leaking. It drips the fluid down to the bottom of the fuselage, and then it runs out a drain hole out the bottom of the fuselage and runs down, and there'll be a red streak going to the tail. But it'll be so thinly dispersed that it won't drip on the ground. So if after the flight, you don't look underneath the airplane. Like if you're not tying the tail down and looking down the underneath side of the airplane looking for oil and hydraulic fluid, you're sending the next guy out with a brake that's about to run out of fluid or fail. And they may get good brake check when they pull out of the ramp, and they may get a good brake check at the hold short line, but they land at the next airport, and then they push the brakes down and nothing happens. And that's also their fault for not pre-flighting, by the way. True. And looking under the plane. But at the end of the day, you could save that from happening by catching it on the post-flight. One of our instructors, Brian, he's our assistant chief flight instructor. He flies a Cirrus. Um, he noticed an oil leak that way on our Cirrus. He was tying on the airplane when he was done. And there was just oil all over the bottom of the airplane, but it wasn't dripping on the ground. He went, whoa, and he snapped a picture of it, sent it to the maintenance guy. And they're like, wow, that's excessive. There's a problem. They pulled the cowl. They found that the push rod tubes weren't secured to the engine, that they had actually worked themselves loose. And they, it was, they were able to repair it. But, you know, had he not looked and then a renter come out, jumped in the plane and flew, they could have run out of oil and crashed. Yeah. Or caps to pull. Pull caps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which is fine, but <laughs> let's not do that. But not, no it, especially, unnecessary caps deployments. Right, especially because that's a super preventable. I mean, the yeah. plane's flying fine now. Exactly. So, so pre-flight and post-flight are both actions, and I'll use your word, that create pre- uh, circumstances where you can prevent incidents from happening you know i read incident reports a lot uh just because i'm a student pilot and i kind of want to have an idea I, the, you know you're never going to live long enough to make the other pe- or, or all the mistakes or learn from other people's mistakes um and i find so often that 
every that, that so many things are preventable. Pilot error happens a lot, but then on top of that, other things that aren't necessarily pilot error are still preventable. Somebody made a mistake. Now, who's the person that was supposed to catch that? I don't necessarily know, but I mean, in a perfect world, there would never be an airplane incident. Like the airplane, the engines are manufactured to the right standards. The the maintenance is done on the right schedule. Like there should never be a flaw in an engine or mechanical failure that causes an airplane to come out of the sky under any circumstance, but it still happens. Um, so, you know, any time we can prevent anything from happening, I think is, is, is a win. Yeah. I mean, you look at uh the student pilot in georgia who took off with two gallons in each fuel tank from a lesson because he was never taught how to check the fuel how to pre-flight the airplane or how to add fuel to the airplane and he died uh in a stall spin on departure from right when he took off in this little piper tomahawk and just think about how preventable that circumstance was and how much trouble that flight school got in and there's actually an, an ensuing lawsuit now and the school shut down, and obviously someone lost their life. But something that's so simple that we went along, and I said, I debated this with myself for a long time. Like, okay, how are we going to handle this situation? Because this is something, like you said, you're reading in a report, and I'm reading this in a report going, okay, how, how can this be prevented at my flight school from ever happening? And I just made a flat-out rule. No student pilot can leave on a solo flight from Melbourne Airport, from the Atlantic Jet Center ramp here where we are, where our flight school is based without full tanks. Not because the student, a good student isn't capable of measuring their own fuel and doing the flight plan properly and doing all the things. It's all the stuff that you don't think about. Has the student fueled an airplane by themselves for the first time? So if they go to another airport, are they going to be able to refuel themselves if they take off with partial fuel from here and then fill up at the next place? Okay. What if they forget to leave a cap off? There goes 50% of your fuel. So if they already have 50% fuel on board, and they lose 50% of that fuel, they now have 25% of the fuel that they thought they had. <laughs> you know, and you can think about all the different ways that this rule prevents stuff from happening, but it, it all comes down to, you know, you got to train the students still to pre-flight, and they got to go up there, and they got to look and see if they've got the fuel, because you can't trust the gauges, right? So there's... That comes down to having a lot of options. Yeah. Yeah. Get, it, when you're in the air, you want options. If you have a problem, you want options. Right. So we come up with a policy that says... I'm going to force you to do this pre-flight action. I'm going to force you to take full tanks, so which means you have to check the tanks and make sure you have full tanks so that you can depart the airport in the first place. And it kind of it's kind of helping us protect ourselves. Let's um let's wrap this up. I, I I'm sure you have more things on your list. Um, but oh yes. Let's let's we'll address some of those later on. I think, but let's wrap this up with uh, a nice little bow. And what I want to say here is, how do you if I'm an instructor, how do I make sure I don't have these bad habits? We've touched on it a little bit, but you know, a lot of this comes from scope creep and Hey, I did this thing and this is, but maybe I changed this one little thing to make it a little bit easier. And I did this over a period of years. How do you get back to, you know what? I, I just found out a bad habit and I need to make sure I'm doing this right. And I think, I think if we can just kind of wrap that up in a little bow, we'll be, we'll have a good episode. Have everything in writing. Have a policy and procedure for everything. Even if you're a single-person operation, a through-the-fence independent flight instructor, have a manual that you operate off of. Have a written policy of how you conduct your business and how you conduct flight operations so that you can stick to it and you'll prevent a lot of things from happening. 
Cool. I think that'll do it for us. Um, I just want to give a quick shout out again to John and Leslie Cobble uh, with Fly Maui for, you know, giving us that tweet and just, you know, giving us something to really think about. Because I think this is really poignant information. We want to make sure we're teaching people the right way. We do. Definitely. Cool. Thanks so much for listening to Flying with a Purpose. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Flying with a Purpose. If you'd like us to consider answering your question on the show, send us an email to podcast at flightreview.tv. That's podcast at flightreview.tv. We would love to hear from you. Also, check out the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash flightreview for the latest flight training episode. Derek is trying to turn me into a pilot in front of the world. Finally, if you like this show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out to have some five-star ratings, especially when we are just starting out. Again, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of Flying with a Purpose. Thank you.